Well, again, happy early Thanksgiving to you and your family. I hope you have a blessed week this week. And this is it, y'all. Today is the day. Today is the season finale. I checked. There's no third Samuel. Like, we got to bring this thing home today. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 24. For those of you who've been with us, we have been in a series in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel for a long time. In fact, there is, uh, I have sort of a running joke with a couple here in our church, and uh, uh, I, I don't even remember saying it, but I made an offhanded comment when we started this series a long time ago. I made the, the comment that, hey, and if you're visiting here today, if you're a guest, you may not know this, but if you come on the first Sunday of a new sermon series, you are obligated to attend every Sunday after that, uh, and they have. They like totally have, and along the way they've joined, and so they're asking me like, now that Samuel's up, like, can we go, like, you know, so, no, you're part of it, so, uh, but we're having fun, I hope you'll join me in 2 Samuel 24, and now would, now's probably as good a time as any, I think it's occasionally good to remind us of why we do this, now's probably a good time as any, just to step back and ask the question, like, why? I mean, why do, there's lots of ways to preach God's word. There's lots of ways. Why at First Baptist do we take, why, why would I take these big books and kind of go through them chapter by chapter instead of just week after week hitting you with, like, the latest topic that's on my mind? Uh, and I think there's a, like, why do we do series like that? Uh, there's two, there's a practical reason and a heart reason. Uh, the practical reason, simply put, is this. Like, I believe this book is the word of God. So therefore, my job, if I believe that, my job is to open it up and to preach it with all my heart and try to help God's people apply it to their lives. But in addition to that, I've also, a pastor's job is to, to help the flock grow in such a way that they themselves can feast on the word of God. And most people, when they read the word of God, they don't just sort of topically, you know, kind of, try to study the whole counsel of God on a particular topic, but rather they, they read it. They open it up. You start in the beginning. There's the middle, and then you, you kind of work your way through a passage, and that's a logical way. So what, by, by teaching through the scriptures in this way, what you're essentially saying is you can do this. We can all do this. We believe as a Christian you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, so he is helping you apply God's word when you read it and you study it on your own to your own life. That's kind of a practical reason to all this. And let's be honest. If I just did my favorite topics and I kind of hit my favorite text, um, how do I say this? Uh, preaching a book through like this keeps both the congregation and the preacher, it keeps us honest. Am I right? Like, isn't it true that when you preach through this way, you are nudged into the dark and dusty corners of Scripture that you would otherwise fear to go into? Is that fair? You know, like, are you, what are you saying, Tom? If you could pick, you're saying you wouldn't preach on the bloodbath of Absalom? That's right. I would not. I would avoid that. I would, uh, and you would hear, uh, week after week, sort of my favorite soapboxes, and in the long run, a congregation would be woefully malnourished because we need the whole counsel of God. And so preaching through in this way keeps us honest. That's a very practical reason. But there's also a heart reason. And the heart reason Paul alludes to in Romans 15, 4, I've quoted it a few times during this marathon series, more than anything, just to encourage myself. <laughs> you can do it, buddy. Uh, uh, Romans 15, 4, he says, 
For the things that were written in former times, so he's talking about the Old Testament, he's talking about First and Second Samuel, the things that were written in former times were written for our instruction. He's talking about New Covenant Christians for our instruction so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What's he mean? How, how do we get hope from studying an Old Testament book? How could a New Testament Christian say that? What he's saying is, what we've been discovering all along, is that when you read the Old Testament, every page of the Old Testament whispers the name of Jesus. It points us. It, 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 it shows us. It, it points us toward Calvary's cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why when we go to these Old Testament scriptures, we all invariably end up at Jesus every time. And in that, we take hope. And that's why we're going to continue to preach through. And so I've got an Advent series. As you know, Advent, I've got a series. It's 37 weeks. Christmas will never come. No, I'm just just kidding. That one will be four weeks uh, coming up. But there it is. There's sort of the practical reason and the heart reason uh, why we study in this way. So final chapter, chapter 24. I I think the best way to work our way through this text would be to make the outline as follows. For those of you who are note takers, the census, the judgment, the altar. I'll say them again. The census, the judgment, the altar. We'll work our way through in that order. And I, I, I'm saying my first point is the census, but boy, this first section, oh man, it, we are, we're, it's like we are left with more questions than answers. So I, thought, I really thought long and hard about making my first point, huh? <laughs> huh? The judgment, the altar. So here we go with point one, huh? David is taking account of his people. Let's just read it. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. And I mean, there's where I get the point. Huh? What on earth does it, why would God's anger be kindled against his own people, and he would incite David to do this thing? We know that God doesn't tempt anyone to evil, so like, what's going on there? And then he says, go and take a census. What's so wrong about the census? So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. That's, that's shorthand from, you know, top to bottom. And number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, hey, listen, I, like, in every group of friends, there's one friend that is so insanely crazy, you know, that it, like, let's do anything or whatever. When that crazy, insane friend is like, whoa, we should put on our seatbelts and be safe. Everybody takes notice, you know what I mean? Because if, if the rule follower said that, it'd be no big deal. But when like crazy man says, no, nah, I'm not doing that, don't do it, right? So those of you who have been in the series, when Joab has some recalcitrance, Mr. Bloody Joab, Mr. I'm not afraid to sin, Joab says don't do it, the king should probably be like, no, nah, I better not do this. Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. That's what they did. Joab reports back in verse 8, when they'd gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. So it was maybe more than a census. It was maybe they were looking for military conscription, seeing who would be available for the draft. And the men of Judah were 500,000. And David is struck by his conscience. He knows he sinned. David's, verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. 
But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Look, I, I don't, I don't want to get bogged down in these questions, but if you're, I, I know myself, and myself, if I'm listening to a sermon like this, I won't be able to focus on the rest of the sermon if I've got these nagging questions. Like, what is going on with this? Number one, why would God incite David? To, it sounds like incited David against the people. And two, what is so wrong with a census? Like, why is it so wrong to count? Like, seriously, David's like, oh, I took a census. I sinned greatly. Like, no, like the Bathsheba thing was that, that you know, this, right? What, what's the big deal about counting the people? There's literally a book in the Bible called Numbers. Like, and yet this thing touched his heart and it was wrong. So why would the Lord be so angry and, and what's so wrong? Let, let, let's just address those so that we can kind of uh, move on. For the first question. Something stirred in David's heart to do this thing, and we know God doesn't tempt anyone to evil. So uh, we turn, as always is the case, Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. And many of you know that in the, in the life of David, there is a parallel historical account in the book of the Chronicles. So the, sometimes when you're reading through Samuel, you get a parallel account in Chronicles, and sometimes it adds a little more texture. Well, this time complicates things. In 1 Chronicles 21, describing this very story that says, you know, the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David. 1 Chronicles 21 says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Well, that makes things tougher. <laughs> What's going on? You got, you got one verse saying God incited David to do it. You got the other saying uh, Satan, in, in the end, David did it. Joab fought against him. What, what's going on here? Is this a contradiction? No. Why? Answer, God sovereignly uses everything for his good purposes. He uses everything. Now, in this case, he is judging Israel. We're not told exactly what that sin was, but he's judging Israel, and he's using David as a rod of judgment, and, and really sovereignly using Satan, who tempts David to do it, which means, incredibly, it means humans are 100% responsible for their actions. And at the same time, and I cannot explain this, at the same time, God is sovereignly overruling and nothing happens outside of his control. Now you say, preacher, can you explain that? No, but I can illustrate it. One of the classic illustrations is what happened in Genesis to Joseph. Do you remember the Joseph story? Uh, obviously, this was an evil thing his brothers did to him. They throw him in the well. They throw him into slavery. We can just picture the enemy, Satan, whispering this temptation. Yeah, throw him into slavery. Get rid of that dreamer, Joseph. That was a wicked thing, and those brothers are going to be held accountable. And yet, at the end of the story, we see how God was arranging the whole thing. And there's this famous verse in Genesis 50 where Joseph looks at his brothers at the end of the story, and he says this, what you intended for evil, God intended for good and the salvation of many. So somehow, the, the, you know, Simeon and Levi and the rest of them, they were 100% responsible for their wicked actions, and yet all of it came under the sovereignty of God who used it all for his glory and for the good of the people. Now, I can't explain that. I can just point to it. The, obviously, the most famous example for Christians would be Calvary's cross. Jesus was crucified at the hands of sinful men. Satan, it says, entered into the heart of Judas to tempt him to betray Jesus. Judas is responsible. These men are responsible for what they did. And yet we all know that the cross ended up to be the great salvation for mankind. So there's no contradiction here. God is working a larger plan for his salvation. 
But there's still, we're still left with that second question. What's so wrong with this, uh, what's so wrong with this census? And the fact is we're not told. And therefore, uh, you know, the real answer is it, it doesn't therefore matter. Uh, but some scholars believe it was wrong for David to take the census because they allude to this passage in Exodus 30 where basically you o- you're only allowed to count what belongs to you. And the people of Israel don't belong to King David. They belong to Yahweh. So it was wrong for him to count as if he owned them. Another, the same passage in Exodus 30 says you have to offer a redemption price to redeem, uh, sort of atone for what you count. And David didn't offer that redemption price, that atonement. And some people think that. Others note the military nature of the census. And so they think maybe David sinned because here he is relying on the soldiers. He's putting his hope, oh, look, you know, I'll I'll be safe and secure because all these armies and all these soldiers, he's relying on horses and chariots instead of trusting in the Lord Almighty. And most scholars think it comes down to his motivation. You can almost picture Satan whispering in David's ear, Oh, David, aren't, aren't you the man? Yeah, haven't you done great? Aren't you a great king? You know what you ought to do, king? You ought to count all your subjects. You ought to count all your people. And then you could really take it easy. You could kick back in your palace in Jerusalem knowing that you've got all this strength. I mean, 800,000 in the northern, kingdom, the northern part, 500,000 in the southern part. Oh, you, you're safe and secure because of what you've done. And you see the temptation there, right? What do we know? The proverb says, pride cometh before a fall. That's it. You know it. And so you see this temptation that Satan might be offering. But here's the thing. So maybe that was the sin. Here's the thing, all that speculation. We don't know. We don't know why it was wrong. Ultimately, it must have been wrong because God said it was wrong. Watch this. And so if God says it's wrong, it's wrong, even if we can't understand why it might be wrong. I'm going to say that again because that's a word for modern people in 2022. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong, even if we cannot see how it's hurting anybody. We cannot see the downside. It's a census. What's the big deal? Why is that unwise? We don't have a good reason for why it's wrong that we can see, and yet God says it's wrong. Therefore, it's wrong. Hey, that's a word for us. That, 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 those of you that are parents, it's, it's a word for you. That's a word for your kids who are growing up. Those of you who are home from college break for, to get some good Thanksgiving food this week and probably do some laundry, Maybe for the first time, all semester. Isn't it true on your college campus? If you think long and hard about what I'm saying, this will help you. Watch. There are plenty of times in life where you're going to run in the same thing. We don't see any good reasons why God says this is wrong. We don't see any downside. We don't see how it's hurting anybody. And yet God said it's wrong. Now, as as modern people, especially in a Western culture, we we will, uh, we have a, it's tough with us and authority. We will obey those in authority as long as we can see a good reason for why they're making the rules they are. Uh, uh, and, and that may not be a bad thing. In a democracy, after all, our elected officials in authority only have power because we, the people, put them in power. So fair enough. But listen to me. You cannot take a modern Western approach to authority with God. If you do, it'll be devastating. It won't work. And here's why. It's a simple illustration. I heard Tim Keller use it, but I've heard other pastors make the same thing. Such a simple illustration. Some of you have children. And you tell them, no, I'm sorry, you cannot go to the movie theater tonight with your friends. 
or you tell them, no, I'm sorry. You can't have access to that app. I'm sorry. You just, or you tell them, those of you who have little kids, no, honey, I'm sorry. You cannot use the stove. Stay far away from the hot stove, right? It gets older, but you get the point. And what, what is it? They ask a one, often they will ask a one-word question. <laughs> oh, some of you have been children. Yeah, exactly, yeah. They stomp their little foot, they look at you, and they demand to know, why? Why can't I go? Why can't I do this? Why can't I ride that? Why can't I, right? It's not fair. And because you're a good parent and you're a patient parent, you often try to give some examples, but you try to give some understanding. Like, no, you can't do it, and here's my reason why, and I'm sorry. You even feel bad for telling them no and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it dawns on you that it is just a fact of life that a large part of the reason you're saying no, they do not have the capacity yet to understand. It is beyond them. They don't understand. No parent looks at a little toddler and says, okay, okay, the, the reason you can't touch a hot stove is because of something called convection. Now, here's the chemical reaction that happens, and let's talk about electrons and skin and flammability. Nobody does that, right? Why? Because that little kid is not prepared to hear the answer for all that. There's too great of a wisdom differential. So, can I give you the speech? This is your speech. Parents, this will help you. Should you be writing this down? Here's what you say. The next time your child says, but why? Say this, quote, honey, sweetheart, the reason I want you to obey me is because I am 45 and you are nine. And even though as a human being, I'm not perfect and I sometimes make make mistakes, in general, nine-year-olds cannot only obey their grown-ups when it makes sense to a nine-year-old to do so. Because if you only obey grown-ups when it makes sense in your mind to do so, You won't live to be 10. This is the end of the speech. Isn't that obvious? Listen, if you only obey what you have the capacity to understand, you don't have the capacity to understand these things. You've got to respect the wisdom differential. You're not respecting the wisdom differential here. What you're saying is you're no wiser than me, and I will obey you, Dad. I will obey you, Mom, if I can see good reasons. Well, that's not obedience. That's giving Mom and Dad an application. You fill this out. I'll get back to you. Okay, reasons, reasons, reasons. Okay, approve or disapprove. That's not obedience. That's demanding an application from your parent. That's not obedience at all. Now, everybody gets that when it comes to kids. I ask you, do we not do the same thing to God? God makes a rule, and as a culture, we say, but why? What we're saying is, I'm not respecting the wisdom differential here, and I'll only obey you, God, if I can clearly see how it doesn't lead to human flourishing or how if it hurts somebody. If it hurts somebody, okay. But here, God, you fill out this application for your reasons as to why I obey, and then I'll see, maybe I'll make some changes. That's not obedience. That's an application, which is why. Oh, listen to me. Years ago, I would have said, young people, listen to me. Culture's changing. Now I realize all people, listen to me. Culture's changing. So let me give you in your back pocket, let me give you a little apologetic that you need to have ready. Because somebody is going to say to you, wait, 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 as a Christian, I'm, I'm sorry. As a Christian, you believe what? 
Or what is it with you Christians and your rules about? Now, you fill in the blank. Personally, I think the hot topic right now is our culture's view on the sexual ethic. But you fill in the blank, whatever. But at some point, they're going to come to you and say, what is the big deal with that? What does it hurt anybody? Why does it matter? Here's your response. Here's what you can say. You ready? Say the following. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Why do you believe that? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. But uh, as a Christian, I don't get to make the rules. End of sentence. I don't get to make the rules. What, uh, what do you mean? Yeah, I know. You think this is crazy. Believe me. I believe a lot weirder stuff than that. <laughs> you wouldn't believe the stuff I believe. I believe a dead man got up and walked out of a grave. I believe he walked on water, man. And they're starting to look at you like, well, uh, yeah, I know. I believe crazy stuff. But the point is, I come under the authority. Whose authority do you come under? Oh, your own. Okay. Okay, so then, well, th- then that's just it. I believe in a God, and I believe if there is a God, he's a whole lot smarter than me. So my job, therefore, is to obey. I don't get to make the rules. You realize th- th- that's so different than what you're tempted to do, which is to say, bashfully apologize. No, 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 we don't really believe that. No, you misunderstand. We don't really, no, just own it. We believe some crazy stuff. You know what it's going to make you look like? It's going to make you look like an alien. And that is what you are. First Peter says you're an alien and a stranger in a strange land. And it's not your, listen, do not apologize and do not try to be so scared and ashamed to explain yourself to a culture that has lost its mind. I'm not just being hyperbolic in my language it's lost its mind. That's what Romans 1 means. The cultures, their minds have been darkened and they've become futile in their thinking. That's what a lost mind means. So when the culture's lost its mind, you just be an alien and you say, yeah, I don't get to make the rules. That's my response. Man, what do you believe about this? And what do you, what do you, what, do you agree with that? Do you, well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> no, nobody asked my opinion, you know, when the world was made. I don't get to make the rules. And what you're doing is, is sort of implying, hopefully stirring them to think, they may not in that moment, but later they'll think, well, who makes the rules in my life? And why are they in authority? I offer that to you. And that's my answer to point one. Huh? But y'all, if we're going to get through 2 Samuel, we got we to pick up the pace, okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, we hear you, but you're saying we, when in fact it's, all right, <clears throat> Point two, the judgment. The judgment. So that's the census. I know a lot of Christians who probably are not obeying God. They're just agreeing with him. And when they agree, they obey. When they disagree, they don't. No, no, no. The application is we're to obey God, not ask him to fill out an application for me to approve. What happens when you don't obey God? Well, that's where we find David. Wrath is going to fall on Israel for sin. And so God does something in verse 11, very unusual. I honestly, I don't know of any other place in Scripture where we see this, where God is going to punish, and he gives David like three options on what your punishment is going to be. And at first glance, this is really unnerving. It's only when you look deeper you go, oh, okay. And when, he arose, when, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord. Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall 
three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Now, as you can see, it seems to me there is a, uh, an inverse ratio between the severity of the punishment and its duration. So uh, it goes from famine, three years. You know, famine's not as bad as a pestilence is going to kill everybody, but that's three years. War, that's three months, or a deadly plague, but only three days. Okay, well, <laughs> verse 14 is an understatement. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. <laughs> yeah, I'd say you are. Uh, if we were like David, we would say, well, Lord, is there like a option D, none of the above? Like, how do I get out of this? Now, look what David does. And, and think about why. His answer is very interesting. The punishment ends up being option C, the pestilence, the plague. For years, I just read this and assumed that David was saying, hey, they're all bad. Better to get it over with quick, right? He's just choosing the shortest duration. They're all terrible. Let's just go with the quickest one because he figures they're all bad. That's what I thought. But that's not David's logic. So how do you know that? Because he says. He gives you his logic. That's not why he chose it. Here's why. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Now, in a way, this demonstrates David's heart, this tr oh, this true repentance Think about it. It's not just the duration. Option one, think about in the ancient Near East what famine means, starvation. What happens if a famine comes to the land in the ancient Near East? You then have to go to other nations to import your grain, to import your food. You, have, you, you are now beholden to other nations. This happened in Genesis. Remember when, when there was a famine in the land, everybody went to Egypt. So what do you do? For, well, they jack up the price, right? Supply and demand. So they jack up the price for grain. They can charge whatever they want. So you go and you spend all your money. When your money is all spent and you're looking at your kids about to die of starvation, guess what you're willing to give up next? Your homes. And after your homes are gone and now the property of this foreign nation and your kids are still starving, guess what you give up next? You sell them your land and now you're a colony of this nation. You, you're now property of this larger, stronger nation. And when you have given up all your land and you've sold everything you can sell and you're still hungry, there remains only one last thing to be sold, yourself. And you and your family now become slaves to this foreign nation so that you can live. Option two, what happens if you're outgunned, to use an anachronistic term? Well, here's what you do. You now go to other nations. You go down to Egypt. You go up to Syria or whatever, and you find mercenaries, and you pay them all your money to come and fight your battle for you. Well, the army's still coming against you. What do you do? You give them your land. And when you've given them all your money and all your land, what's left to give? You're going to die at the hands of this other army. That's right. You sell yourself and your family into slavery. And now you're slaves of this other nation. This third option, no matter what happens, you're in the hands of God. It's not like Egypt has the cure for some pestilence. It's not like you can go off to Assyria and get the cure from some disease. You are in the hands of God. And David says, let us fall into the hands of God. Because there, when we're in the hand of God, even if we're stranded on his justice, we're still stranded on his mercy, for his mercy is great.
but we're not going to end up slaves to Egypt or to some other country for any of these reasons. We're God's people. David. Am I right? This guy. He's a walking contradiction. Throughout this whole story, sometimes you look at him with the Bathsheba stuff and the murder and the, and the indulgence with his kids and all that, and you go, what are you thinking? And then other times, he sparkles with faith. And it's a moment like this where you go, oh, man, as painful as it is, that's where he wants to be in judgment. He wants to be in the mercy of God. What's the application? Look for mercy, even in judgment. He has grown. You can see his spiritual maturity because he, like, runs toward God when he's in judgment, not away from him in fear. This is a key point. Have you noticed he's grown in his spiritual maturity? One of the ways you know you're growing in spiritual maturity is look at the way he repents. What does he do? He says, I've sinned greatly. I've sinned before the Lord. Let him take his sin away. And then the prophet Gad shows up. How is that different from the last time? Remember the last time? He wasn't willing to admit he'd sinned. Nathan the prophet had to come, give him that story, and say, you are the man. And then and only then, when he was busted, then he said, I have sinned greatly. This time, he, it, uh, let me say it this way. A mark of spiritual maturity is not that you stop sinning forever. It's that when you sin, you repent faster. You just get better at repentance. And here's the mark of somebody growing in maturity. Listen, it doesn't mean they're sinless. Watch this, watch. It means when you really mess up and you're under the hand of judgment, you run into the arms of your heavenly Father, not away from him in fear. Some of you, this is a word for you this morning. You're, you're under the judgment of God. You, you feel so far from God, you're sinning. Listen, you got two choices. You can run from him in fear, but I'm praying that God's grace has worked in your life over and over to such a degree. And David had seen over and over, his mer- my sins, they are many. His mercy is more. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He would write in one of his favorite songs. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And there he runs toward his heavenly Father in love without fear. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. So the application for part one, the census is obey him. Even, you, even when you can't see how it's hurting anybody, obey him. And the application for the judgment is, if you haven't obeyed him, repent faster. <laughs> Come to him. Run toward the arms of your father, not away. And now, census, judgment. And here we go. The final point. The final point of the final sermon in a 27-week-long series in Samuel. (laughs) The altar. This final passage is, I think, difficult to break up into little bite-sized pieces because so much is told in such a way that uh, uh, (sighs) multiple things are happening at once in this passage. So there's no way, obviously, to write it out in such a way that chronology, I mean, it's all happening at once. You got the angel, you're going to see there's God, the angel, the God says some things, David says some things. So chronology is not what ties all this together. What ties all this together is not chronology, but geography, it's location. Over and over in the passage we're about to read, the text wants to make clear this happened at a special spot. This location is important, and it's the threshing floor of Aruna. Aruna was a guy. Threshing floor of Aruna. It makes sense. A threshing floor, you know, where you separate the wheat from the chaff. They would do that high up on a hilltop to catch all the breeze and it would knock away the the, the stuff you don't want and the heavy wheat would fall to the ground. And uh, Okay, so threshing floor of Aruna. Here we go. Let's just read 15 through 25 in, in one go. 
Again, it's kind of all happening at once, so I didn't want to break it apart. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Uh, just a note, uh, did you notice that, how, how would you say, uh, like the punishment in a way fit the crime. David wanted to take a big census from Dan to Beersheba, and so the judgment comes from Dan to Beersheba. It is interesting that his hand of judgment was stayed because what was there, 800,000 and 500,000? How many died? 70,000. Even in his judgment, he has mercy. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, okay, so there's all this happening. The, the plague's going on, and now it's, he's coming toward the capital city. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. So, okay, so he said this while he was still, the plague was still going on. And said, behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Think about how far we've come. Old David, he never lost that shepherd's heart, did he? I'm responsible for these sheep, you got to wonder, like, he's a man after God's own heart. Stuff like that, you go, a little boy from Bethlehem, he's still shepherding all these years. He's saying, let it fall on me and my family. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. See, we're tied to this place. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And then they do this ancient Near East bartering thing where it's like, I will pay. No, take it for free. I don't mean take it for free. I mean, now it's your turn. And then you're supposed to say, no, I won't take it. And that's what they do. Aruna said, why, why has the Lord, the king, come to his servant, David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, let my Lord, the king, take Offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That's a sermon, right? So can I just not preach that sermon right now and just, if you'll, can I trust you that you agree with me that that principle applies for all time for all of God's people? I will not offer offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Can we just agree that's a word? That's a sermon. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 pieces, 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Whew. Second Samuel. <clears throat> Let me ask you, is this how you thought this epic book would end? On the surface, if you don't dig deep, in a way it kind of feels anticlimactic, you know? Okay, so it ends on an offering. He's got burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, you know, peace offerings. 
But is everybody clear on what happened? So first of all, David was wise to put himself in the hands of the Lord. He did show mercy. But specifically, the Lord used this angel to bring the pestilence. So he stretches out his hand toward Jerusalem. Remember I told you there were parallel accounts? In uh, Chronicles, he adds a little more texture to this. It says the angel was suspended. David saw the angel suspended between heaven and earth with a sword about to fall on Jerusalem. So it's not just his hand. It's a hand of judgment. It's a hand of sword about to fall. And when that sword's about to fall, at the last moment, it's all going to be lost. God says, enough. Stay your hand. And at the same time, you've got David saying, take me instead. Look at verse 17. Behold, I've sinned and done, done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me and my father's house. Pour out your judgment on me and my family. And what happens next? Does God say, okay, David judged. No. Why not? Why can't David atone for sin? Well, if you've been part of this series at all, if you know anything about David, the answer is obvious. David cannot be the substitutionary atonement for the people's sin because David's got a lot of issues in the sin department himself, right? David's covered in sin. What good is a substitute if the substitute's no better than the thing for which it's substituted? David, David can't offer that. I mean, listen, his shepherd's heart is in the right place. I'm not knocking what he did. That's totally noble. But what he says is, let your judgment fall down on me and my family. And, and, and God instead, verse 18, instead of bringing that sword of judgment right there on David, he sort of leaves that sword suspended. May I say it this way? God leaves David's prayer unanswered for now. Instead says, here's what we're going to do. Verse 18, go raise up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of a ruin of the Jebusite. David went up. Instead, he says, I'll tell you what we'll do. Offer a bunch of animals. And he's got all these oxen here. So the animals will point to the substitutionary atonement. The judgment will not fall on the people anymore. It'll fall on these substitute animals. And we're just getting started. That very spot, the threshing floor of Aruna, that very spot was where countless animals would be sacrificed because that very spot, remember David wasn't allowed to build the temple. Solomon got to build it, but David got to buy the land. Aruna's threshing floor is the exact spot where the temple was built. You say, how do you know that? The Bible. Second Chronicles 3 ties it all together. Second Chronicles, it was so important, I thought I'd put it up here for you. Second Chronicles 3.1. Then Solomon, I'm just reminding that who everybody is, that's David's son, began to build a temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. And Chronicles like, remember? Remember the story, 2 Samuel 24? And everybody's like, not really. He's like, it was on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite? And like, yes, now I remember. <laughs> that very spot becomes the temple. And for the next thousand years, these sacrifices are offered. There's one other little detail. Do you see it? What else happened on the threshing floor of Aruna? A thousand years earlier. It says here, that same spot, which we call the threshing floor of Aruna, used to go by another name. Mount Moriah. What happened on Mount Moriah, class? <laughs> a thousand years earlier in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham was told, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And Abraham climbed up dark Moriah 
with his son Isaac, and there he built an offering unto the Lord. This great test of faith. He laid Isaac there, the father sacrificing the son, willing to be sacrificed. And there, just as he raised his hand in judgment, does everyone see the parallel? Just as he raised his hand in judgment, what does God say? The angel, stay your hand, enough. And a substitute was provided, a ram in the thicket. And a thousand years later, the angel of the Lord is about to come down on Jerusalem in all this judgment, and the angel of the Lord says, stop. And this time, David's willing to be the ram in the thicket. And God says, no. So I want everybody to see this, and I don't want anyone to miss it. On this very spot, God says to the angel, enough. Withhold your hand. Stay your hand. And David offers himself, let the judgment fall on me and my family. And instead of doing that, God lets that prayer remain unanswered for now and instead begins the process of the temple which will provide all these sacrifices. A thousand years earlier, there's Abraham about to sacrifice his son. He's told stop. Here, the people are about to be uh, judged. God says stop. And for a thousand years, these animals are killed as substitutes, pictures there at the temple mount. Now, I want everybody to see what's happening David, and he's done the, the book has done this the whole time for me. David, I hope it's done it for you, keeps pointing us to the true and better David. Because what's happening is David sees all this judgment. He's heartbroken. He sees the sword of judgment about to fall. He can't bear to see it fall on the people, so he offers himself. And he says, take me instead. Let the judgment fall on me and my family. And God suspends judgment, but it is a that prayer didn't go away. Let the judgment fall on me and my family. It is a prayer, an unanswered prayer, that hangs over the house of David. One author said, it is a prayer that haunts history. It's awaiting an answer. These are but sheep. I'm the shepherd. Let your hand fall on me and my family. And you say, but Tom, that's just it. The judgment did not fall on David. Correct. But did it fall on his family? thousand years later, of all the ways the New Testament could introduce Jesus, the very first page of the New Testament takes us to this very moment. And when Jesus is introduced to us on the pages of the New Testament in Matthew 1.1, it says this is the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. So that prayer, 2 Samuel 24, where David says, let the judgment fall on me and my family, was answered a thousand years later by the family of David, the true and better son of David, right here on this spot. Just like David saw the judgment falling, and he said, no, my heart's broken. Take me instead. I, Jesus shows up, says, I'm of the house of David. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And David, though his shepherd's heart was in the right place, when he said, strike the sheep, let these sheep, I mean, strike the shepherd, let these sheep go free. The problem was, he himself had sin. Oh, but Jesus was the sinless one. He was the sinless, spotless lamb of God. So he could say, smite the shepherd and let these sheep go free. And there, incredibly, teaching in the temple, and then on the night he was betrayed, thousand years after 2 Samuel, David's prayer was finally answered, and the hand of judgment fell on David's family, just a, just a short distance away from Mount Moriah, what we see here, Aruna's threshing floor, the Temple Mount, and there just outside on a hill called Calvary, 
that sort of judgment came down. And the people are spared because Jesus died in our place and for our salvation. Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of response. As he comes and prepares, I want you to think long and hard about what that means. That on the Temple Mount, uh, Mount Moriah, the threshing floor of Aruna, and then go out, let your mind go out to dark Gethsemane and Calvary's cross. A father's hand was raised over Isaac, but at the last minute, stay your hand. There's a substitute, a ram caught in a thicket. (laughs) Ironically, who was caught in a a bunch of thorns. Isn't that something? That substitute, way back in Genesis 22, had a bunch of thorns around his head, and he was the substitute. (coughs) David saw the angel's sword coming down. There was a substitute, the temple sacrificial system. But when Jesus Christ hung there on that cross for you, it was your life for his. When he hung there on that cross, don't you know, there was, no, there was no stay your hand. There was no enough. Why? There was no substitute for Jesus because he was the substitute. There was no sacrifice for Jesus because he was the sacrifice for us and our salvation. So 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, it's all of it. It points us to the true and better ultimate David who would say, smite the shepherd, let the sheep go free. It points us to David, the, the true and better David, Jesus Christ, who said, let your hand fall upon me. I hope the application for you is clear. If, if you're struggling with obedience because you just don't agree or you, you're standing in authority over the Bible, won't you humble yourself today and obey? And for everybody who would say, Tom, I've, I've, I've not obeyed. I hope you'll know that. This is what the whole, the whole Bible is trying to get across to you, that, that God is not mad at you. Go to him. Go, repent. Turn to him. The whole point of, like, like, like Romans, for example, is saying, listen, if Jesus Christ, if he gave up his son on the cross, how will he not freely give you all things? Do you understand what he's saying? He loves you. If the cross didn't make Jesus give up on you, what would? Height or depth? Then he created thing, death nor life, angels, principalities, rulers, powers. What? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah, Jesus, the son of David. So there's a sense in which we have come now to the end of Samuel. There is another sense in which it's only the beginning. Because now, every time we look at the kingdom of God in the New Testament, every time we look at Jesus in the New Testament, now can we, not, can we not see, can we not hearken back to Samuel and all these things we see in the true and better David? And so it's, I mean, next week we're going to start a Christmas series, you know, about a little, little boy from Bethlehem. And here we are again, back to this family of David. He loves you. Will you go to him and will you discover there the ultimate sacrifice for us in our salvation? Let's pray. Oh God, grant to your people a fresh appreciation and gratitude for the good news of the gospel that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that you came into the world to save sinners. For anybody who's struggling and they're running from you in fear, let them hear today your call. If there's anybody who doesn't know you, that that is not yet a child of God, let today be that day. And God, grant to 
especially I, I, I pray for young people in a culture that's lost its mind. Grant to us, Lord, an obedience, not an application for you to fill out. Let's give us your lives. Give you our lives, Lord. Grant us that. And grant that our hearts would be made truly grateful by your grace for your great salvation. We pray this in the matchless name of our true and better King, Jesus. Amen.